Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 70. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Alan Steele of Alan Steele Asset Management. Since 1973, Alan has been practicing and studying the secrets of how real wealth is created and protected. Since forming Alan Steele Asset Management in 1975, he's built a highly qualified team, written countless articles, appeared on radio and TV, and is the recognized leader in his field. Alan joins us via a three-way telephone call. Tim and I discuss further matters at the end of the call. Welcome to the show, Alan. Great to have you on. Thank you. Welcome to you. Welcome to well, welcome to Grey Scotland. Well, thankfully we we can't see that at the moment. We have got a Grey London. <laughs> so we've just had the passing of the Edinburgh Festival. Um, were you involved in? Did you get to see any of that? Was it was it uh, fun and games as always? Yeah, I um, I had the pleasure, if that's the right word, of listening to Tim and uh, Russell Napier and Merrin Somerset Webb um, uh, at uh, Adam Smith Centre. Um, oh. Cheery stuff, as usual, you know, uh, buy gold and how things are going uh, badly. Right, so that, that, <laughs> that cheered you up no end. Uh, well, at least we had a nice tapas afterwards, so that was fine. The funny thing is, you know, when you actually live within spitting distance of Edinburgh, um, you tend to avoid as much as possible the middle, because I think Tim pointed out there was something like 4.8 million visitors, um, and the place is mobbed, and the traffic is terrible, and uh, um the trains are always packed and not enough of them and things like that. So it's like everywhere else, I suppose. You know, it's when you go and visit somebody in another part of the world, they take you to places that they haven't been themselves for a couple of years. So, <laughs> so we tend to go in sparingly at the Edinburgh Festival, which is, uh, but it's a remarkable event. We always recommend it to friends around the world to come and see it. Fantastic. Tim, what, what was your take on it? Well, it's the, it's the first time I had a chance to really experience the festival, um, you know, for a few days and you know, staying in a decent hotel and all the rest. And it's it's the most it's the most magical experience. The closest thing I could say is it's like an entire city turning into Freshers' Fair for uh, for a week or however long it lasts. So for anyone that's been to university, Freshers' Fair, uh, you know, is that time when everyone's you know, out canvassing and uh, promoting and and whatnot. And it's just a, it's an amazing vibe. It's a very friendly, very uh, very communal experience. So it, it, it kind of it, it's fun even even without the shows. But obviously, it's the shows that make the real difference. Uh, we also actually went to see a remarkable sh- one one woman show about uh, Churchill, a mutual friend Jim Mellon. Uh, we because uh, Jim comes up and spends a bit of time at the Edinburgh Festival every year. Jim's always good value, isn't he? What did he have to say? Yeah, what did he have to say? Well, we didn't actually talk very much about about things. Um, I've known him since uh, 1981. Um, amazingly enough, he used to call on me when he was with GT. He ran he ran a US fund in the Silicon Valley. Um, he was a child prodigy. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's funny, actually, we were both poor then, and uh, I'm still poor, and he's uh, done very well for himself. But we, we catch up with each other in Ibiza. We're both Ibiza freaks, so we catch up uh, every year in Ibiza. What what is what is it about Ibiza that would attract a kind of middle aged man? Because I always think that's like it's party town for the younguns. Uh, well, you see, it's it's amazing. If you, it's like everything else in the media, if you, if you just listen to the media, um, you always get the wrong impression. And Ibiza is. I started going there in 1977 when I was not a middle-aged man. I'm now an old man, by the way. <laughs> um, there is something magic about that island. It's, it, there's only a small proportion of the island which is nuts and horrible and clubbing and stuff like that. The rest of the island, especially in the middle towards the north, hasn't changed in, what, 40-odd years? It, it, it genuinely is an idyllic. It's an idyllic place to go and spend a week or so, especially if you're up around Santa Gertrudis or San Juan, where where Jim's got his home. 
Wow, he's got his home there. I didn't know that. That's uh, that's something. I well, actually, when I say a home, he's got an estate. <laughs> I think there's four houses on it. Uh, his house is very special, um, and he has what he what he uh, laughingly calls a guest house, which is a phenomenal place to go and stay. Um, and he spends all his time there, and I think he gets a lot of his inspiration there. I, I know he writes a lot when he's there. You write a bit yourself, don't you, Alan? I I do um well I'm I'm actually well what I've been doing for the last oh I don't know fifteen years is every month I send a thing called letter from a go out to our clients and friends. Um and it tends to be a bit contrarian, it has a bit of fun in it. Uh and it seems to work because it holds our clients in at times when they feel inclined to, to run away if if you follow the headlines. And I always say to them as well, if you want to laugh go and have a read at the headlines five years ago and see what you make of that. I do that, and um, we are at the moment struggling away to write. I wanted to write a book, um, basically a book. I've been in this industry for 50 years, one way or another, um, and I thought it was a good idea to do a wee book on what I've learned over 50 years. Um, and... Uh, to, to, not to write it as a book as such, but to write it with little chapters, um, taking inspiration. I don't know if, uh, if you guys remember Robert Townsend. Name rings a bell, I'm not sure why. Well, in the, in the late, in the early 1970s, somewhere around 1971, I would guess, he, he wrote a book called Up the Organization from his experiences in running Avis, uh, I think it was, um, and the book is written with headings in alphabetical order, so you don't have to start at the beginning and work your way through. You just pick a, a title, like personnel departments or something like that, or economists, and um, just read what he has to say. Um, so that, 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 that always stuck in the back of my mind. I loved that book. And then more recently, I found The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Gobelli, um, which is an amazing little book because... I think it's got something like 49 chapters in it, and it's along the same lines. It just writes maybe a couple of pages and a half about a topic. Um, so we're using that as a kind of um, template yeah, to just pick things out, like pessimism, uh, uh, media, uh, all sorts of things. I've got loads of headings. So the idea is to look at it from a pessimistic point of view and then Look at it from a contrarian point of view. You know, when we met in um, in Edinburgh, you, you you told me quite a funny story about the potential title for the uh, book. Do you want to share that with us? <laughs> well, the thing is, somebody might steal it. <laughs> oh, that's true. Um, I had I had two ideas in my head. One was my mother used to say when we when we went somewhere into Edinburgh and people jumped to queue. She used to say, "Excuse me, am I invisible?" Um, I thought I thought that was quite a good one because I think I think a lot of people who struggle to invest are, are invisible. Uh, I think that I think they feel they're invisible. Um, but the one I thought of was and it was only as a joke I put it forward, and um, a couple of people who were helping me on it thought it was a good idea, and it was basically I I upped their wealth up yours. Um, <laughs> So uh, we'll, we'll see what it's eventually called when, it, when we finish it. But it's a bit of a struggle to sit and write like, something like 50 chapters, like little chapters on on topics that I think are interesting. You've clearly been in the industry for a while, Alan. In what ways would you say the industry has changed in your in your time in it? Uh, well, that's, how long have we got? Um, well, I think... Well, when I first started, I went to university and went, uh, I, I studied geography, by the way, and I did maths as a second subject. And by the time I'd come out after four years of honours geography, I was sick looking at maths. Um, and it occurred to me that the only way forward was probably to end up teaching the damn thing or, or being a lecturer and teaching it to older people, something like that. Maybe aerial photogrammetry, I, I don't know. And then somebody said to me, um, look, you're good at maths. Why don't you become an actuary? Um, now, I said, what's that? And they said, well, they make a lot of money. Uh, and I thought, well, that's for me. Um, so I then convinced Scottish widows that I was the missing link. 
um, despite the fact I didn't have a master's degree. And I went there. Um, <laughs> and it was in these days, it was the, the world was dominated. Uh, the, the financial world was really dominated by with profit plans. Uh, you know, all these with profit companies and stuff like that. And that's where I that's where I started. Um, I realised very quickly that it wasn't for me because uh, I failed the medical because I had a sense of humour. Um, <laughs> so I, I then went into O and M, and then finally I joined. I was I think 26. I became the youngest training manager in the life industry in Scotland, for sure. A year of that, and I decided I'd had enough of that, and I became an ISA. Um, but but it was dominated by with profit. So there were obviously the occasional little light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, investment trusts have been around for a long time. Uh, Abbey Life, um, with Mark Weinberg, was starting in the unit link site. <clears throat> and in 71, they formed uh, Hambro Life. Uh, and the rest is history. So there has been lots of changes. The sad thing is that um, legislation protecting the consumers came in in 86. That hasn't really worked. They don't seem to be very proactive. Um, and there's an interesting thing here. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a link between Pink Floyd and the Financial Services Act. I'm not sure if you know that. Do you know that? No, you're going to have to tell us what that is. Well, you know that Pink Floyd um, used to be clients of an outfit in London called Norton Warburg. Uh, Norton Warburg also advised retirees and widows of retirees in the Bank of England. And Norton Warburg basically were naughty boys and ran away with the money. Um, I think Pink Floyd lost £2 million, allegedly. And then they actually formed, uh, they, they, they wrote Dark Side of the Moon, um, to make the money back again. And one of the tracks is all about money. Oh, so, yes. Wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> uh, and the interesting thing is it took governments so many years afterwards to, to, to actually bring in the Financial Services Act because it was 86 before they brought it in. Um, and that's a long time after Pink Floyd were ripped off. Yeah, do you think clients themselves have changed? Investors have changed? Uh, no, but human nature. You know, when I was when I was at school um, yeah, about a hundred years ago, we had a Latin teacher who was the brother of Hugh McDermott, uh, who was a poet, Scottish poet, very famous Scottish poet. He was a black sheep of the family, and um, we used to complain to him that uh, all the teachers told us we were the worst class that they'd ever they'd ever had. Uh, and he said, oh, they've been saying that for years. He said, they said that in Grecian times and Roman times. He said, it's uh, mm. human nature never changes. Generations never change. And, and I think that's true. And I don't think the clients ever change really in terms of their aspirations and their fears. The difference, what has changed is the 24-hour non-stop information fake news overload that we are subject to, to these, today. Yeah. That's what's changed. And I think what that does is that it stirs up more and more fears. And if you look at the Dalbar numbers in America, which talk about the average of returns that people make from the American stock exchange, uh, I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, if the market's doing something like over a 20-year period, if the market's returning, say, 9%, they're getting 3%. Yeah. Um, and I saw, I saw a quote recently by Peter Lynch, uh, the Fidelity Magellan man, who um, I think between 77 and 1990 returned 29% per annum compound to his investors in the fund. And he actually said, and I don't know how he worked this out, but he actually said that he calculated that the average investor in his fund had, had uh, returned 7% rather than 29% because they kept selling at the wrong time and buying at the wrong time. Um, and I don't think that's changed very much. Mr. Rolf Dobley earlier, the, the thing the thing I'm I'm familiar with with Rolf for is is an excellent essay called Avoid News, and he, right. he's the first person that that made this point absolutely crystal clear that news. I think he, the way he put it is news is to the brain what sugar is to the body. That's a wonderful essay. I've read it. Um, I, I have kept it somewhere. I keep so much stuff. I have difficulty finding it. Uh, and so what I do, do nowadays, because I've got a 1947 brain inside my head and, you know, I, I keep all this stuff and, I, and there's all this stuff online and, and so on. 
and I, I would always find it difficult to, to, to find it again. So I've got a little notebook, and what I do is I write in a little notebook. It's a, quite a big little notebook, and I write in that such and such a date, somebody said that, and I keep it. And every now and again, I go back and look at it. And I remember there's a, there's a, I saw a wonderful quote recently. It said, me, me, mediocre strategies and plans produce mediocre results. And that kind of sums it up. If you could go back in time and, and give some advice to your younger self, um, say specifically about the world of investing, what, what would that be? Um, it would be do exactly the same as you've done. <laughs> and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. I was, at, I was at Scottish Widows for uh, under three years, I think. Uh, I was supposed to be a member of the final salary scheme. But in these days, in, unless you stayed for five years, you basically didn't get anything. You didn't get any kind of credit for your years. And then I joined another company for one year. Again, final salary scheme, but left after one year. And then I became an IFA with a small firm that didn't have any pension schemes. And so when I started my own company in, in 1975, I was 28. And I realized I had no pension benefits. And I recognized the value of pension funds because they're basically... Basically, a pension fund is just a tax-free box with funny rules. I mean, that's what it is. Um, and in these days, everything was tax-free. The dividends rolled up tax-free, no capital gains, of course, etc. Um, and if you are unlucky, unlucky enough to snuff it before your time, it all avoids inheritance tax or capital transfer tax or whatever it was called at the time. Um, so when I was 28, I started putting 25% of my income, gross income, into investment. And everything was going wonderfully well in terms of possible early retirement until my first wife, my 25 years, decided I was too boring and left, taking with her a hell of a lot of money. So so at 47, I had to start all over again. Um, but that's that's the advice I'd give to anybody. For goodness sake, you know, do what Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett says. He says you should be investing and then spending the difference rather than spending it and then thinking how much I've got left. I think it's a really important point. Or, or don't get married. Uh, well, like Mr. Mellon, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it would have made that much difference to me. Um, uh, because the nice thing about being married is you've got an, an additional tax haven bolted on the side. You've both got your ISA allowances, you've both got capital gains tax allowances, you've both got tax allowances, you've, got, you've both got pension allowances. It's a pretty effective way as long as you keep together. So you you were an IFA, which is an independent financial advisor, and now you write research. Yeah. And can anybody subscribe to this research? The, the research I get involved, because I do all the research now, and what, I'm, what we're doing is, uh, first of all, despite the fact that other people tell you not to do this, we, we study macro, first of all. Um, what is likely to be happening in the world in terms of currencies, in terms of interest rates, equities, you know, et cetera, you know, the whole thing. And a long time ago, um, 20 years ago, I discovered Ned Davis Research uh, in America. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. But I think last year they were awarded the accolade of the best forecasting uh, organization in the world. Um, They're not cheap, uh, so it's not the sort of thing that people can do but we use that as a sort of base to start with and then a lot of the other stuff is actually quite is free and um there's a guy called uh scott granis um in the in the states as well he's a retired economist he's unusual for an economist because he's actually optimistic um it's a very rare thing that and, and he he writes under um the califia beach pundit because he lives at Califia Beach in California, and his stuff is excellent. Uh, Wealth of Common Sense is Ben Carlson in America. You can get that free. Um, there's a chap called Tim Price writes quite interesting stuff, and you can get I'm that. Not, not heard, not heard of Tim. No, not heard of that guy. <laughs> so we, we we tend to start there, and a, and a long time ago, um, and I'm trying to think how long ago this was. It was probably um, a, a good a good 15 years ago, it occurred to me that although we were IFAs looking at things like financial independence, pensions, inheritance tax planning and tax planning and all that kind of thing, as well as investment, um, it occurred to me that what we were 
really doing is we've not fund managers. Uh, we know where to start by managing as a fund. But we, we, we kind of realised that what we were trying to do was creating a, a, finance, a, a fantasy fund management team, as in the fantasy teams that you get uh, for football and you get them in the, the Telegraph and stuff like that. Um, and we realised that that's what we were doing. And, and then I went back to very basic stuff like, I don't know if you guys remember Brian Clough? Yeah, Cluffy. Uh, Brian Clough Brian Clough used to say that it was pretty easy to build a team. What you did is you got the best goalkeeper you, that money could buy. Um, you then put in front of him a really hard uh, centre half. Um, in front of that, you put a defensive midfielder that was pretty good. And then in front of that, you put a striker. And you, he called it the spine of the team. But he always said build from the back, and that's what we kind of do for our clients. A lot of our clients now are like me, they're older. Um, and when people get older, they're more interested in protecting wealth than, than going for it, if you know what I mean. So hmm. depends where we are in the economic cycle, what kind of team we play at, at the moment. And at the moment, we've probably got two goalkeepers. Um, FIFA would actually not allow that, but we can do that. So we've got a couple of goalkeepers and then we've got a back four, um, probably four in front of that and, uh, you know, kind of lone striker. And that's, that's the sort of approach that we've been doing. Back in 2009, we were playing a 4-3-3. Right. And, and so the reason why I ask about it, because on your website, uh, Alan Steele Asset Management, you've got some research yeah. there, which I thought was was uh, some commentary, which was written by you, which I thought was great. So I was just reading some of it. And learning a bit about what Granny Mackay would say. So I thought you might want to talk about her and how she's taught you about investing or the lessons that you've learned from her. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is that um, if, I miss, if I miss my Granny Mackay out, I, I tend to use quite a few quotes. Uh, as some of them are quite humorous. Um, some of them are quite deep and so on. And I, I use all sorts of expert quotes and so on. And, and some years ago, I decided that um, common sense would make some would be a, a sensible. But and one of the most common sensible people I've ever known in my life was my granny Mackay. My granny Mackay was uh, she brought up seven kids on her own in a very a very basic little flat outside with an outside toilet and stuff like that. Um, and she used to come away with these. Well, grannies do. I don't know if anybody else has got a granny that would be the same. Grannies have got this amazing way of looking at things like you never know what's in front of you is a common thing that they would say. And she would say things like, um, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> and I, and to me, with all this, the headline stuff and the, the pessimists that keep getting put out on the various news channels and, and then internet and so on, they're always looking, for, they seem to be looking for the next big thing that's going wrong. And they, they replace it after two days with something even bigger. And so that's when I, uh, that's why I use the kind of things that my memory tells me about what she used to say. And um, it goes down well with the clients. And, and if I do, if I don't say anything about her for a couple of issues, I get people send me emails and say, what's happened to Granny Mackay? <laughs> but Granny Mackay, I mean, she died when I was 24. So I think she would have been 1971. Um, but I, but she was around long enough. My other granny actually died when I was only 11. Um, so I don't really... She, I mean, she never really passed on any words of wisdom. Uh, although she was very good. She was very good at explaining things in a different way. I mean, she'd say to you things like, would you like boiled eggs and toast? And you'd go, no, no thanks. And then she said, what about some super-duper eggs and soldiers? And you'd go, oh, I have that. Right. And well, it was the same thing. Uh, we're not complicated people. We don't go for a lot of jargon and things like that. Clients want to have a very simple way of having things explained to them. And they understand, even the ladies understand the football team. Uh, and they understand the ideas of common sense. Um, and and that, that's, it's just evolved over the years. It started a long time ago. I seem to be hogging this. I'm sorry about this. Um, you're asking the questions, so I'll have to keep answering them. About 25 years ago, we used to go and sit down with our corporate clients, and they would we'd work out how much 
we could put in the pension to save corporation tax and so on. You know, very simple stuff. And then one day, one of them said to me, this is wonderful. We sit down every year, uh, we work this out, how to save tax and so on. But what I'm really interested in is, will it be enough when I get to 60 or 65? I mean, how will it look? And, and I went away and thought about it, and I thought, all right, okay. So, so from then on, we did things very simple goal setting by saying to somebody, look, do you want to be financially independent, yes or no? If they said, if they said, and I said, if you say no, there's no point in me being here. I may as well just bugger off. Um, and they'd say, right, okay, well, yes, I would. And the next question is, well, when would that be? What age would it be? Uh, and they would tell me. And then you say, right, if you were 60 today or 65, if you were that today, in today's money, and it has tax, how much would you want to have to spend that you would consider you would be financially independent. Very, that's a very basic starting point. And they would tell you. And then you just went away, applied an inflation factor, assumed the growth rate, and you go back and say, right, that's your target, which always blew them away. That's what we have to achieve. Let's look at what you've got just now. Let's throw the crap out and let's concentrate on tax planning and things like that. Let's try and get decent returns. And let's review it every year so we can come back and kick your ass. <laughs> and that's what we did. And, and it works. But those clients who are seeking income, which I, I guess is most people um, these days, what are you doing about that given the expensiveness of the bond market? To me, the bond market at the moment is, is just crazy. Um, I mean, I don't know what the last, was it 16 trillion or something in negative bond, long-term negative corporate, uh, sorry, sovereign bonds. That just looks like madness to me. And what also looks like even worse madness is the fact that people are rushing in at these levels. Because um, I've always learned that when the herd is rushing somewhere, you go in the opposite direction. I, I cannot imagine that in five years' time it will be worse than this. I would have thought if there's any danger of people losing money, it seems to me that that's the place to pile your money. I, I do think there's a lot of value out there in the equity markets. What's your technical read on things, Paul, for uh, te bond technicals? Yeah, the te technical view of the bond market is that it's looking like we've we've had a, a very sort of aggressive move to the upside and then a very sharp realisation. Um, but it's not enough to trigger a major top, but it's enough to sort of shake the very short-term bulls. But... The outlook for the bond market seems to be, it's not one of, of whether it technically looks good or bad. It's, it's like the outlook compared to other assets. Like, would you, as we've spoken about before, would you really want to buy bonds when you could buy something else that is not going to, to yield a negative, a, a negative yield, basically? So it's in comparison to the other markets. Now, with the Fed... Um, talking about well, cutting rates and people expecting lower rates, you know, this has given a fillet to just about any other risk on asset, including the bond markets. But how sustainable that is, is another matter. And I think something that you've highlighted, Tim, and something that Alan talks about in, in one of his recent letters is the outlook for inflation that everybody seems to think doesn't really exist. And I was particularly interested in Alan's kind of rule of thumb measure of inflation. And I wonder whether that was going to come in and kind of, you know, have an effect, on, a shaking effect on the bond market um, at some point. So I just thought Alan might want to speak a bit about his inflation measure and how how he's uh, managed, <laughs> he, how he's looked at inflation literally over the last, whatever, 30, 40 years. I was at the 50th anniversary reunion of um the graduation in 69 with uh, people, some people I hadn't seen for 25 years, some people I hadn't seen for 50 years. And I thought at the time it was an idea to look at, um, we were going on about how things were. When you get older, you tend to, I don't know if you remember, my dad used to go on about, I remember getting into the pictures for eight pence, and I remember if you went in at half time, you could get them in for three pence, and, and we're talking old pence, and it seems to be as you get older, you start looking back nostalgically at how much things cost, and we were talking about that, and uh, we, we actually, uh, before 
a few of us, the normal people, not the ones that went on to stay in academia, but the, the ones that went on to go into business, we we actually met for a couple of drinks before we had to attend a reception to steal ourselves. And we went to an old pub that we used to frequent called Stuart's in Drummond Street. Drummond Street, by the way, Tim, is not that far from the present, uh, which tends to have a lot of things happening at the fringe. Um, and we went back there, and it was called Stuart's. It's now called the Brass Monkey for some reason. Um, it's a kind of student pub and so on. And we were sitting there, and I said to them, you know, instead of playing football on a Wednesday when, when the games were called off, um, at university, you got time off to play sports and stuff. Uh, a few of us used to go to Stuart's, and we we would get a drink called it's called light beer, light ale, a pint of light, and two pies for for two and sixpence. It's just twelve and a half p, which is astonishing when you think about it, because the same um, culinary delights today would, would probably at least even in Edinburgh would set you back eight pounds. Um, and if you actually uh, went, went higher up and Got another beer which is dearer and some gravy and so on. Um, you were you were asked you were asked to pay um, another one in six, so that would be you know, it's like twenty p. And and so you look at it and you think, goodness gracious, that's fifty years, and things some things have gone up forty times. And then you look at other stuff as well. So we've had and of course we had a huge inflation in the seventies, eighties into the early 90s, and then it's been a bit benign uh, allegedly since. But the thing that gets me is they keep changing the basket of stuff that goes in to create inflation. Um, and unless you're, unless you're prepared to sit and eat chicken sandwiches and coffee and, and watch the news on your television, uh, and anybody else in the real world, really, it's... it's Inflation's pretty high, and I still think I don't know what they're saying. They're saying it's something like two percent or something like that, two or three percent. Ken, I don't believe that. I think it's higher than that in reality. Um, but it's it's hard to say if it's ever going to return. I hope it doesn't return to what it was like in the 70s, because 75, 76, the inflation rate was 26 percent, um, and that's um, we have to live through that. And the, the question is, you go back and you say, well, what was it that worked um, as an investment back in that period? Um, and it was a, it was a stock market um, and property um, because of supply-demand issues. And whether we'll get back to that. But at some point, you would think governments would want inflation. I think they've been trying to create it, but uh, it's allegedly failed. But at some point, that's, it, with all that debt around, you would think that's the answer, wouldn't you, to to generate inflation so that the, the price of the debt goes down in real terms. But that's a great big issue. Our clients aren't really interested in big issues. They're interested in small issues. You know, how, how can I retire? How can I not pay more tax than I need to? And how can I restrict inheritance tax? That, that's, that's what people really want. With regard to the markets, what is your outlook? How do you see them? Because there's there's a lot of pessimism, myself included, in where we are now. I, that doesn't rule out another upward leg, which is obviously anything's possible. But you, you sound like you're more optimistic than most. Is this a time to be more op optimistic than most? <laughs> well, you know, somebody once, in 1987, I had a client who uh, was a lot older than me and uh, had quite a lot of money with me. And uh, uh, in 1987, I remember when uh, I think the market, the Dow, there was a Dow in probably the UK as well, fell 22% in one day in October. I think it was the 19th of October or something like that. Yeah, um, 1987. And, and he yeah. came to me, uh, 1987, it was October. It was, I think it was the 19th. Anyway, he said to me two things. He said, when you used to tell me that units can go down as well as plummet, um, <laughs> he said, I thought you. He said, I thought you were joking. And he then said, you know what your problem is? And I went, what? He said, your problem is you're an optimist. And I thought, that's a really interesting take on life, you know, that being an optimist is a problem. Um, but I, yes, I tend to be optimistic. But, I mean, you should really be asking the question to Tim because he's far, far brighter than I am on markets. But the, the way I look at it is this. We're continually told by almost everybody uh, that the way to do it is to save fees and buy passes. And there's been billions flowing into trackers and passes um, on the basis that because 
if it's active, it's a higher charge, it has to be worse. Now, the problem, problem with that is that, um, well, as I understand it, it's very, very basic. As I understand it, if you were to pick four words as the most successful method of investing, it would be buy cheap, sell high, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, everybody would agree with that. Yeah. Buy cheap, sell high. Well, when you look at things like the FTSE, the All Share, the S&P 500, etc., if you look at all the markets I can think of, they're capital weighted. And, and as the trends develop and more and more people are buying passives, they're putting more and more money into bigger and bigger uh, companies because they're being pushed up by the demand um, and you get ridiculous things. I remember when Vodafone in 99 was like top of the market and stuff, and it was huge. And, and if you go through time, you'll see that. It was the banks before 2007 and so on. So more and more people are piling at the passives, which are forcing people to buy more and more of the overvalued, oversized, overvalued. And what you've got below it is you've got a lot of value that's sitting there. Um, and if people don't want it, they're being forced to sell it. So what we like to do with our fantasy football team is look at fund managers who have a process, whether it's momentum or value or whatever it is, or rising dividends, um, discount intrinsic value, whatever their system is. We, we like to look for people like that because I would prefer to have my football team against the average football team. I would rather have Barcelona than Barnsley. So when we talk about the market, somebody says, how's the market today? You know, um, what does that really mean? And, and I think people are actually looking at it as being an index. And if you were to look at the, if you were to look at the FTSE over the last 20 years, it's not been a very effective process to buy that market or put your money into that passive. And, the, and there's one other thing that actually, I'm not sure if you, you guys are really aware, but there's a lot of IFAs. I would say the majority of IFAs have been falling into this trap and they've been buying passives. They then put them into a platform. And some platforms cost are charging 0.45% extra. And they're then charging the clients 1% for managing the funds. Now, what, what managing what funds? Because if you buy a cheap passive <clears throat> at, say, 10 bits, and then you stick 1% on top and then put it in a platform at 4.45%, that's just risky for disaster. I, I still think that it makes sense. I know Tim has a particular way of doing things that I like, and uh, there are other managers out there that I like who, who look for intrinsic value. And, and let me tell you something else, actually, you might be surprised at. But the, the biggest fund that we, we own is, is, a, is a goalkeeper. The fund was launched in 2001. It has very low exposure to equities. It has gold in it, cash, sovereign bonds, and so on. It's run by a man who's a pessimist. He's a goalkeeper. He stays in his box. His job is to stop goals going in behind him. Mm. That fund... Since, since 2001, has outperformed the FTSE total return without any charges at all. His, his fund is net of charges. <clears throat> and it's outperformed it by something like 40%. So the idea of, well, the market, you know, the, well, how does the market, the idea of that, I think, is the wrong way to look at it. The thing is, are, are there any value? Is there value to be had? at certain sectors of different markets or bonds or property, is, is, is there value somewhere that's being ignored? Because what do they call it? Reversion to mean? Yeah, it, reversion it to mean, yeah. It may, be, it may be happening now. Yeah, it does, I don't know if it makes sense, but I'll tell you one thing. It makes sense to our clients. That, well, it does make sense. Are you, are you allowed to name the goalkeeper, or is this a, is this a secret source of yours that you've invested no, in? I don't mind. Sebastian Lyon. It's interesting that his investment strategy is very similar to his professional career, which would be sort of stopping goals going in. So he's obviously taken that into his investment 
world. That that's that's uh, that's really interesting. But he also he was also selected to replace. Um, there's there's a, an investment trust in Edinburgh that's uh, quite a famous pessimistic investment trust called Personal Assets Trust. It's a short term pat. Um, it was run for years by a man called Ian Rushbrook. Um, and after Ian died some years ago, the board went out to, to say, can we find someone else that looks in life the same way as Ian did? And they found Sebastian. And Sebastian Lyon, uh, or Troy, um, were appointed the managers of Personal Assets Trust. So if you want his approach, if somebody wants his approach to an investment trust, they can get it in Personal Assets Trust. If they want it as a collective, they can buy it through through the Troy Funds, Trojan. Interesting. So, so yeah. as so as far as you're concerned, you're you're looking for basically you have you have no outlook on the markets either positive or negative. You're just looking for people who have performed consistently well and who have an attitude, a protective attitude to funds, and are looking for value. Would that be correct? Um, not necessarily, but certainly in the goalkeeper, in, in the defence, we're looking for that. But we're, we're also looking for people with a process. We're looking for thinkers. I mean, I don't want to mention all the names because anybody listening to this will just steal all our funds. But uh, <laughs> we, we, we spend a lot of time looking and thinking about it. And you don't necessarily get it right all the time because perfection doesn't exist. Of course. Um, Who but does? you get it right most of the time. When you get it right most of the time. And you're also looking at the asset allocation as well. I mean, the, the Ned Davis boys are very good at, at, at talking about an asset allocation. But we've been, we were heavy, um, as the attackers, we were heavy on global and US for years and years. Uh, and so when clients come in for a review, and we use, the bigger clients will see them every six months. So when they come in for a review, they, to be honest, they're shocked. They, they get a shock because if they've been watching bad news at 10 on the telly, their expectation is that they're losing money. And then they come in and you go, no, you're, you're up 9%. And they go, oh, how's that? Because <laughs> you're in the right places. It's it's a bit um, like sterling, isn't it? Everybody's talking about how weak sterling is. And actually, if you look at it against the euros, two months high, you know, and it's been reversing. The economy's been doing very yeah. well. And so... The fact that it was low was an anomaly, and but you wouldn't get that from the headlines. No, that's true. On the other, on the other side, I remember, I remember a few years ago, and I, I don't ask me exactly when it was, but it's not that long ago. It's just in the last four or five years. Sterling hit one sixty against the dollar, and and I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, that's that doesn't that doesn't look right. That's that's wrong. Um, and I, so from then on, we started to basically forget about hedging uh, foreign currencies. Um, and I personally stuck a lot of money in dollars. I just thought, oh, I've got this money in cash. I may as well have it in dollars. So I had a dollar account. Um, so when I go on holiday, and I've been going on holiday, um, Australia, Canada, America, um, Ibiza. <laughs> um, when I go on holiday, I've been I've been basically seizing currency at 160. Um, you know, I've, I've actually done pretty well. Um, but um, I, I think two weeks ago, we we kind of took took the view that the hype had been overdone. Probably a good time to kind of go long and sterling. Um, and so far, so good. Touch touch wood. Fingers crossed. Um, and I think at the end, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. I don't know about politics. I have no idea. Um, my dad always said, uh, it may have been my granny Mackay, <laughs> she always said, they're all, she always said, they're all the same, son. They're, always, they're all the same. They're only in it for what they can get out of it. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's Labour, Liberals, or whatever. They're all the same. Mm. And, and I used to argue with them, you know, no, 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 that's not true. But then when you're 16 and 17, you think you know it all, you don't. Um, so I have no idea what's going to happen. I would have thought, I would, my guess would be that whatever happens to resolve the issue, once a final decision is made, whether it's a no-deal Brexit, a, a stay, no matter what it is, I think I think that there will be a sigh of relief because we will have certainty, and I think the pound will strengthen, and I think the, the market, if you want to call it that, will probably be a decent place to be. 
especially this, especially in, in the mid cap arena and stuff like that. Interesting. Small caps. So, Alan, you, you, Tim may have briefed you on this, but we do something called media picks where we like to share ideas of, uh, of, of things that like, it could be a book, it could be a film. It doesn't have to be market related, but it can just be something that we think is either really, really good or really, really bad. Um, you mentioned at the top of the show, some books that you, you liked, and obviously we'll include those in the show notes, but is there anything that you'd like to put forward as a, as a media pick that, that you think people should, should check out? Well, <clears throat> Yeah, two books that I've read recently, which I think are absolutely outstanding, and I recommend to anybody, and it's possible you've already read them or heard about them. The first one's called Alchemy, yeah, um, by by Rory Sutherland. Oh yes, yes. Um, it's it's a, a fantastic read and full of great ideas. Um, the other book is called Moonshots. Um, that's an L instead of an N, so it's not it's not Moonshots, it's Loonshots. Um, and I, the guy, I can't remember. It's an amazing book. I, I, I've read it twice and I've lent it out. It's um, the author's, I think, Safi Bakal or something like that. It's, it's, um, it's a study of how crazy ideas can change the world in war and medicine and, and, other, and other ways as well in communications. Uh, it talks about people who have gone down a particular way, which... Uh, appear to be a, a dead end and things like solving disease, um, creating radar. There's there's talk, of, they've got an Elon Musk in there and so on. And equally, it goes on about and how these crazy idea people are then cut down by by the kind of committee thinkers. Right. You know, you know it's, it's a remarkable book. I highly recommend it. That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I absolutely love Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy. And oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant because it just gives you permission to think differently. And yeah. when you've been schooled in the way that we all have in the same way, to, to think outside the box, everybody kind of looks at you in a funny way. But actually, that's where all the value is, which I which I, I love. So I, I, I share that. So thank you for those two. That's absolutely well, there's one, one last thing, excuse me, just on what you said then. I wrote, I wrote a quote down here. I can't remember who said it. He said, if you want to achieve the results of the 1%, you'll have to do different things to the other 99%. <laughs> Brilliant quote. Well, that that's absolutely fantastic, Alan. Thank you so much for that. If people who are listening to this want to get hold of you, how would they do that? They, well, they, if they want to get hold of me, they, um, and we have got clients all over the UK. We've got clients in Jersey as well um, because we used to get quite a lot of coverage in the Telegraph and the Sunday Times and stuff like that when they had good journalists there. There's a way into the website called infoalansteel.com and uh, they could go in there. Uh, what they should do is just go and read, read what it says on the website. And, and if they... And if, if they feel that we're the kind of people they want to talk to, then that's wonderful. And if they don't, well, that's fine. Because what we're interested in is we're interested in building a partnership with, with clients for the long term. We want to be there to, 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 to get them to achieve what they want to do. And, and we have a process that actually helps that. Um, we, we are... We have fair value, let's put it that way. My guys say we don't tell them they're cheap because we are cheap, but we we, like, we think we're fair value. And, and um, if people want to come and talk to us, we're very we're very happy to help. And it's been a it's been I hope I hope uh, I hope I haven't gone on too much this morning, but it's been uh, quite enjoyable. That has been great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you. And thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. So, Tim, Alan, what a character. Uh, lovely guy, isn't he? Really lovely guy. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Edinburgh. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, did we, in the last show? I think we did. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know how much we touched on this earlier, but like I was saying at the, at the sort of start of the show, it, it's just like a gigantic freshers' fair uh, that, it, it, that takes over a whole city. And it's almost academic as to whether you're going to see the shows or not because it's just such a nice vibe to the whole place. And the, the stats, and these are stats I got from Dominic Frisbee, and I went to see two separate things that he he did at the the Fringe. One was um, his Libertarian Love Songs, which is great and very funny, which is a sort of live music show. And the other was an introduction to what well, is effectively a sort of history of the Fringe, a history of the, the Fringe Festival, and also a, 
uh, talk about Adam Smith. So, I mean, Dominic Frisbee is a bit of a renaissance guy. But the figures that I think he, he cited were that I think the population of Edinburgh is something like something like just under half a million people. But it shoots up to nearly five million people during the month of August. Uh, and it's effectively the largest, as far as I can see, it's the largest festival in the world. So who, who else did you bump into? So the, the shows I went, I went, I managed to get, I sadly, I had tickets, but didn't get to see Simon Evans, which would have been, and that, that was apparently very, very well reviewed. But I did get to see, probably the highlight was Jeff Norcott, right leaning, but well meaning. Jeff Norcott was an, was an amazing sort of comedy piece, amazing stand up. Um, and Alistair, I think it's Alistair Williams was also there. He's the guy that did the uh, Burger King Brexit, if you've seen that, that <laughs> sketch, which is very, very funny. No, how could we catch that? Is that? Uh, just, 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 well, uh, let me just, let me just check the name, first of all, but you'll be able to find it on YouTube. Well, I would, I, it's, it's basically the funniest, funniest way of describing Brexit. It just has to be seen to be, it's only about a minute and a half, two minutes. So it's very, very short, but uh, very, very funny. There was a, there was something on the BBC with Jeff Norcott. Um, talking, talking. Well, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff's, Jeff's profile has risen very, very. I mean, I actually had a very quick chat with him after the show, just because I was sort of fawning all over. I managed to <laughs> managed to bump into him after the show, so I, I, I'm, I'm such a complete tart that I wasn't going to let that let that go. He's a lovely guy, um, but no, he's, he's he's got quite a high profile now. So he, I, he does something called the, the, I think it's the Daily Mash, which I don't watch, but he's even he's even been on Question Time, right? Um, and he's I, I love his podcast. So he has a, a podcast. What is it called now? Jeff Norcott. What I think it's what most people think it's called. Mm-hmm. But again, that's that's a uh, great fun. And uh, he's the, the the strange thing about our, our, our current culture is that the best political insight is coming from the worlds of stand-up comedy. People like Simon Evans, Jeff Norcott, and this is very very strange. It's a little bit like uh, if we go back to sort of the the the, the dark days of the, of the financial crisis, that the best commentary. Uh, uh, describing what was actually going on in the financial markets was coming from ma- magazines like um, the Rolling Stone and uh, Vanity Fair. Yes. And I'm thinking of, for example, this guy, Matt Taibbi, who's the guy that legendarily described Goldman Sachs as a giant vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jabbing its blood funnels into anything that smells like money. And this was coming from basically from, you know, completely left field, the, the sort of coverage that, that, that Matt Tybee and Michael Lewis were providing ought to have been coming from journals like the FT and the, uh, the Economist, but it wasn't. So, and don't get me started on the sort of the, the, the failures of conventional financial media because they are legion. But uh, it, so there's something very weird going on whereby some of the best, in my opinion, some of the best political insight is coming from the worlds of comedy. Yes, incredible, really. Very weird times. It'd be great to have Jeff on the show at some point. I would love, I would love to have Jeff on the show. So he would be definitely be on my my wish list. Did you moot that? To, I'm sure you. you... I, I haven't. I'm, I'm about to play it cool. So, oh. uh, <laughs> slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. But uh, no, I'd love if if he is ever listening. Then I'd love, it would be an absolute delight to have have him on. Now your weekly. Uh, what what's the subject for for this week coming up? That's a very good question. I'll just have to have a quick look myself to remind myself. So I think, uh, yeah, so it, it'll be out on Monday and it's, it's already available on the, 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 the website and uh, uh, as, as part of the blog. And it's, it's called Lucky Numbers. And it starts with actually what I think is quite an incredible uh, little anecdote going back to the 30s that uh, when Roosevelt, frankly, Delano Roosevelt was president, he would basically, uh, he would, he would, fixed the gold price there's, there's an anecdote someone came in and he was he was in bed having breakfast in bed and he said uh he, he, there was a guy called henry morgenthau who who was discussing the price of gold with him and uh on november the third i think this is 1933 on november the third morgenthau suggested to roosevelt a 19 to 22 cent rise in price for, for gold and roosevelt responded that he wanted 21 cents why it is a lucky number, Roosevelt said, laughing, because it's three times seven. So you've got someone fixing the gold price over there, over there, egg, egg and, sh- and, and soldiers in the morning. It's like surreal. Anyway, so as you can probably infer from that, it's about effectively why, why you know, I strongly believe that the prices in markets should be set by markets themselves and not by, you know, by, by technocratic monsters at central banks. But it, but we've we've done that one to death. So. Um, you were talking also in that article about how you shouldn't be taught history by gym teachers, which I thought. 
thought was hilarious. Well, I was just just, just, being, just being a little bit facetious about the, the quality of teaching in schools. But on a serious note, that 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 piece is about you know what I what I remember of you know being taught about the Great Depression. I think we had literally one history lesson was sort of devoted to it when we was doing um, history at school. And I think my experience is probably shared by most people, which is if that stuff is covered at all, you know, the entire basically the entirety of the 1930s in America, Great Depression America, the the prevailing myth, if you like, is that you, know, you had the Wall Street crash in 29 and then you had a prolonged, uh, a deep and prolonged depression. And then basically this guy Roosevelt was sort of parachuted in and he fixed everything with his new deal. That's. I think even now is the sort of prevailing uh, accepted wisdom. There is a book, America's Great Depression by Murray Rothbard. If you read that, it'll change your whole perspective on everything because his argument is basically Roosevelt exacerbated the depression through tinkering with the economy and setting up all these alphabet agencies. And it was effectively the Second World War that lifted America out of depression. It it had nothing to do with government activity. And the fact that the, that 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 whole decade is basically misrepresented by historians and by economists is a very sobering thing. So then, of course, you fast forward to, you know, let's say 2008 and the subsequent decade, and history has completely repeated itself. Um, so, needless to say, I, I you know, there are two, there are two books that I would recommend. One being the, the the Rothbard book about America's Great Depression. The other one is one I continually refer to, which is a book called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls. And the key message is in the title, which is for basically all of modern history, for all of recorded history, governments have tried to fix prices, have tried to basically fix things, and it never, ever works. And if it seems to work, it will come with all kinds of unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah. So just to go back, so... 40 centuries, for all of recorded history, you've had governments mucking around with markets and whatever short-term achievements they they think they make, they just lead to further and further distortions. So every, life would be so much simpler if governments would just get out of the market business. But that seems impossible, unfortunately. Looking at Brexit, what do we? What do you think at this point? Is it? It's well, as, as, as you know, we've got this big bet with... Uh, <laughs> this huge bet. Huge monster, monster bet <laughs> with Zach, uh, with Zach Mir over whether we whether we will actually leave at the end of October or not. I'm I'm hopeful, um, but I'm not that hopeful. You know, it, it seems just as uncertain as, as before. But I mean, I'm I, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people, and I am boiling over with anger and frustration at just how the extent to which the democracy in this country is being traduced by. An establishment I could only now describe as evil, vile, and you, certainly anti-democratic. Alan makes made a point, and I, I guess I, I kind of fall into this really, thinking that most politicians, if not, well, a, the, the, a, a bad, a bad people. Well, I, I can't be trusted. Can't be trusted. Basically, yes. It's like they're all they're all sort of bad in one way or another, and it, you, it's like it's, it's like picking the the worst possible uh, option out of some bad options all the time because they all seem to just lie to us. They never do what they say. And, and it's just, it just sort of goes on. And when you hear, when I hear arguments, political arguments, they end up sounding a bit like football team type arguments, like my team's better than yours. And this is why, and nobody seems to agree. And I know there's obviously degrees of that and it's not as simple as that, but in, in the end, it, it kind of ends up feeling like that. But oh, it's so it's just so polarized. I mean, the the Onion, the American satirical website, the Onion has a great. I think you can actually buy this as a T-shirt, and the T-shirt says, "The sports team that I support is considerably better than the sports team that you support." <laughs> but I, I had a bit of fun yesterday, so I was uh, I just put out a new poll on Twitter. The question asked, uh, "Is Emily Thornbury a wildly overinflated, pustulant political zit waiting to be squeezed by reality? <laughs> yes or no?" And I'm glad to report that. So far, the yes vote is in by 95% compared to no, with a, a rather derisory five. And it's, there's still time. There's another six days left, so people can people can express their own opinion on whether Emily Thornbury is a wildly overinflated, pustulant political zit waiting to be squeezed by reality or not. W- would you say in a democracy she should be allowed, allowed to stand for whatever she thinks is right, even if it's to reversing Brexit? And I, not that I necessarily agree with that, but... 
I think grudgingly, I, I would have to accept that because there's a line that's attributed to Voltaire, which is along the lines of, I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Yes. And there's a libertarian, you kind of have to allow people, you, you know, grudgingly sometimes in this case, have to allow people, you know, to have free expression, even though they're talking complete crap. <laughs> uh, because that's, that's, you know, that's what, what it takes being a part of a free society. Just quickly to, to move on to media picks for me, um, I saw uh, during the week, Perhaps the strangest film I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, come on. Uh, Let's have it. And I, know, I know that's quite a, a bold call. So it's, <laughs> it's, but you, it's out now. I think we watched it on, on Sky, Sky Movies. It's called Welcome to Marwen. Uh, it stars <laughs> Steve Carell, who I love. I think Steve Carell is brilliant. Oh, he is. And you would not, I don't, this film has to kind of be seen to be disbelieved. It's quite <laughs> extraordinary. And and apparently even more bizarrely based apparently based on a true story. Oh my so God. it's it's it, 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 it without giving too much away because I couldn't really call it a plot driven film. Basically, the premise is you have a guy that's beaten nearly to death um, in a, just by a mob, and when he recovers, he's lost his entire memory. He's lost his entire memory of everything about himself. Uh, so he's sort of there's a scrapbook of sort of memories whereby he sort of starts to put his life back together again. And one of the ways he deals with this, he used to be, apparently, he used to be a, an artist, uh, a, a, like a sort of graphic artist. He used to draw. Um, and he, he deals with, with his situation by creating a model village, a model Belgian village from the Second World War and populating it with little dolls uh, and then reenacting sort of Nazi atrocities. And half of this film is animated with the, the dolls in question looking, you know, like exactly like people in the cast. It is such a strange, it is such a strange film. It's also a certificate 12, which makes me think that it, it, there may well be a risk that people's kids are going to see this. This is an adult film or PG 13. It's an adult film. And they should, frank, in my opinion, they should have dropped some, you know, just, just some uh, occasional C bombs or F bombs to make it at least a 15, so that ki kids aren't sort of. A any child watching this film, I think, will probably be profoundly disturbed. It's it's so strange, it's so weird. It's not a bad film. It's a it's a, a very weird film, and it's it's by Robert Zemeckis, who is someone that you know has made a load of you know blockbuster films. But it's, it's difficult to pin down, um, but it's, I would say, it's, I very nearly stopped watching it after five minutes. I, I really hated the animation, but it's, it's such an extraordinary thing. You kind of have to see it, but it, it's just weird, weird beyond measure. Would, you, would it help to have come back from the pub slightly inebriated to watch it? or that that, not? That's a very good question. I really don't know whether it would have benefited <laughs> from wild inebriation or not. Difficult to say. But uh, <laughs> That's how strange it is. It, oh it is so, ser seriously, it is, it is beyond strange. Like I say, I, 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 bear in mind, I saw an awful lot of appalling, weird nonsense in the 80s, you know, after the sort of home video revolution. Um, but this, <laughs> this, I think, is the strangest film I've ever seen. Oh, man, that's a call. That's a call. I can't wait for that. It's called, called Welcome to Marwin. And it's, it stars the always excellent Steve Carell, but very, very odd. Uh, I, also, you, you need to go to somewhere like imdb.com or Metacritic and just see how, you know, if you thought Brexit polarized people, get, get a load of how this film has polarized critical responses. Oh, and it's got a meta score, meta score of 40, which is kind of, that's like near death. Yeah. But not, every, not everybody hated it, but it's it's... It's weird, almost compelling, but it's it's just as weird as hell. Well, well my one is going to be a little more mainstream. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it's a fantastic film. I've just called it on Amazon Prime. It's called Green Book, and it's um, it's the story of a working class Italian bouncer who becomes the driver of an African American classic pianist, classical pianist, on tour of the venues through the 1960s of the American South. Um, it stars Viggo Mortensen. I like Viggo. Like yeah, Vigo. he's very good. He's very good in this. It's great. It's just fantastic, fantastic film. Um, it's it's got great reviews, and I think time well spent. You'll really enjoy it. Um, so Green Book. I haven't heard a bad word said about it from anybody. So 
If you want something that's definitely... Crap. It's complete crap. <laughs> I haven't seen it. No, it's really good. It's really good. So I'm, I'm sure you enjoy that. Um, I'm, I'm also reading um, The Choice Factory, which is a book that was recommended. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've, I've read that. That's very, very good. Have, yeah, I'm just read. I'm like to read it really slowly. So I'm absolutely loving it. So I wanted to recommend that but i'm going to wait until i finished it but i'm really enjoying it i think it's a fantastic book so when i get to the end of that i'll be able to say a bit more about it but that's that's a it's a really great book but um but tim look as always thank you so much great to chat as always and thanks to thanks to alan who was uh who was a star he was an absolute star yeah now i've got to i'm going to do some shout outs location wise i thought this might be quite interesting going from all the places that we've got listeners who um are not mainstream, shall we say. So I'm going to shout out to the listeners in Mozambique, Cyprus, Bangladesh, Botswana, Montenegro, Mauritius, Barbados, Maldives, Kuwait, Cabo Verde, the Isle of Man, Puerto Rico, Namibia, Jersey, Israel, Bulgaria, Malaysia, Kyrgyzstan, if I've said that right, I don't know if I have, Slovenia, uh, Papua New Guinea, Pakistan, Kenya, Bosnia, Herzegovina. Uh, Bless you. <laughs> China, Ukraine, Indonesia, Hungary, Turkey, Qatar, Russia, Guernsey, Sweden, Cambodia, Romania, Taiwan, Iceland, Denmark, Portugal, South Africa, Thailand, Austria, Philippines, Singapore, Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, India, Finland, Vietnam, Greece, Bermuda, Hong Kong, Venezuela, Japan, Norway, New Zealand, Belgium, Switzerland, Latvia, France, Italy, United Arab Emirates, Germany, Spain, Ireland, Canada, Australia, United States, and of course, us in the UK. That, I mean, that's, You're just reading a world map. I am indeed. No, I'm not. It's, believe it or not, we've got listeners in all those places. So I think it, that's it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the Twitter conversation with Tim, uh, which is highly entertaining. So don't forget, follow Tim F. Price on Twitter. And until next time, Bye-bye. Thanks, Tim. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.